Good morning. It's great to be with you all here. Uh, let's, um, let's, let's pray and, and we'll get into the word. Father, as we gather today uh, at the close of Holy Week and we celebrate the resurrection, God, I just pray that you would fill our hearts with joy. Fill our hearts with joy. Lead us in this time. We ask that you would just be lifted up high. Meet us where we're at, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, as it is Easter Sunday and the close of uh, what many in um, the church and in history have called the Holy Week, this also actually marks the end of Passover as well. A week celebrated by Jews globally to, to remember the Exodus. Now this exodus that they remember was an exodus from the grip of slavery. This exodus that Jews celebrate is the exodus from oppression to freedom as God split the Red Sea in two and made a way for them. A way when there was no other way. And although we're not Jews here, well, at least I'm not a Jew, um, what's amazing about reflecting on the Passover reflecting on the Exodus, especially during Easter, is that this Exodus was actually a precursor and a foreshadow for what Jesus was going to do for us on the cross. Jesus' death and resurrection was our Red Sea. Jesus' death and resurrection was our Exodus from the grip of slavery. It was the better Exodus. It was, our, it was our exodus from oppression to freedom as Jesus was nailed on the cross to make a way for us. It was an exodus from our hurt and our exodus from paying for everything that we deserve. What we celebrate today is Jesus making a way when there was no other way. Isn't it interesting though how we get to celebrate today what many Jews are still anticipating. Many Jews during the Passover week will actually lay a, they'll have a place open at their table, not for anyone in their family, but they'll have a place open for Elijah to come. Because the Jews are still waiting for Elijah to come, for the spirit of Elijah to come to usher in the presence of the Messiah who is a savior. But what we understand is that the spirit of Elijah already came through John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the forerunner who paved the way for Jesus's revival, for his, for his arrival. And rather than us like Jews celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread where, where the Jews were to remember their past freedom, the Exodus, and look forward to a future salvation today on Easter Sunday. We as Christians get to celebrate through communion the fact that the Messiah has already secured our freedom and salvation when we place our hope in him. Isn't that incredible? I mean, that is the good news for why we are gathering. Now, over the past few weeks, here at the fellowship at our Two Rivers campus and also here at Mount Juliet, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. And as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, uh, we've been learning about the ministry of Jesus. And typically on Easter Sunday, we would not 
continue, or we would really not even be reading from Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to 22, but as you'll see, and it's amazing in the calendar, uh, as you see, as, we, as we'll look through Mark chapter 2, verse 18, uh, you'll see in these verses that all scripture is God-breathed, that all scripture is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as we look and dig into this passage, you'll see how this actually foreshadows what we are celebrating today on Easter Sunday. So let's look at Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to continue on from last week. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new patch pulls away from the old cloth. And a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. The challenge about fasting here comes directly behind the questioning that we examined last week about Jesus dining with sinners. Jesus explained that he came intentionally for sinners like you and I. Now, this question, right, this question about fasting. I think when the question was posed to Jesus, Jesus was kind of like this. He was like, are we still talking about this? Like, can you guys, don't you realize what is happening in and around us, that there's this party going on? Can you realize that there's no mourning going on here, that you Pharisees, You know, you taught everyone that sinners were hated by God, yet I have come, Jesus has come to prove that I'm, you know, he says this, that I am God and that I love them, so it's time to rejoice, right? Can you imagine Jesus hearing the disciples, you know, the the Pharisees come up and, you know, what about fasting? What about this? What about this? And, And Jesus is like, come on, wake up, I'm here. It's interesting, though, to dig into the why behind this question. Why did the Pharisees in this particular moment bring this up? What was going on in their minds about the ministry of Jesus that they were observing? This wasn't the Holy Week. This wasn't Palm Sunday last week. This wasn't Jesus had come into Jerusalem and and, and that Jesus was about to get nailed. This This wasn't that. This was way before then near the beginning of his ministry, and the Pharisees are talking about fasting. Well, we see here that they brought this up because they were trying to test Jesus. They were trying to figure this Jesus out. I know there are maybe some of you here who who haven't been into a church for weeks, maybe even months, and you're trying to figure this Jesus out. Well, this is what the Pharisees are doing as well. They were trying to figure out who this Jesus was and why Jesus was not submitting to the laws and customs of that day. 
Now, if you look a little bit before that and you look at the context in which the Pharisees were and, and, and the Jews were living in, right? In the Old Testament, there was one day in the entire calendar year when fasting was mandatory for all of Israel. There was only one day. It was the Day of Atonement. However, for the Pharisees, although there was one day for, for all of Israel, that it was all for all of Israel to mandatory fast, for the Pharisees, they actually fasted twice a week. They fasted on Monday and they fasted on Thursday. So in this situation, right, the Pharisees wanted to know why Jesus' disciples weren't submitting to the authority and to the customs of this day. Well, as we discussed a couple weeks ago, this is because Jesus was the new authority. Jesus wasn't coming to rebel or reject the law. Jesus came, in fact, to fulfill it. And that's what he was beginning to do here. What Jesus was doing here in this passage was, was he was rejecting, right? He was rejecting the staunch religious requirements of the Pharisees because the Pharisees had, had trying to, they, they, they tried to put their own customs on the people of God through their own interpretation of what the law said. So they were like, well, why aren't you fasting twice a week? Like all religious people, that all holy people are supposed to do. Yet remember, there was only one day when fasting was mandatory in all of Israel. I mean, it didn't mean that people couldn't fast in any other instances. It's just that the Pharisees, they kind of made it mandatory for other people to do it. What the Pharisees did was that they made the spirit of the law, they made that and they turned that into the letter of the law. And by doing that, they actually quenched the spirit behind it all. I mean, that's what it was like for me growing up. Growing up, I had to go to church. I didn't have a chance. I didn't, I didn't really even have a choice. It wasn't even something I wanted to do, but my parents said, we're going. And it was a fight most weeks, unless there was, you know, candy or, uh, you know, they tried to bribe me by going to McDonald's afterwards. And they're like, this is the day you're going to get a Sunday, right? I didn't realize Sunday was spelled S-U-N-D-A-E, right? I was like, I thought you could only buy Sundays, you know, from McDonald's on Sunday, right? They would use these kind of tricks to bribe me. Like literally, I was like, oh, this is awesome. I didn't know they served it any other day. And so I went, right? I went, I I was like, why am I even here? What relevance does this Jesus make to my life thousands of years later? What relevance could a dead person make in anyone's life, lives today? Was the thought I had. And then I would hear things like, you can't wear sandals on Sunday. You can't wear shorts. Right? You can't go buy a Slurpee <laughs> or a slushy, right? You can't go shopping. You can't. And I heard all these laws. I was like, what's with that? And what ended up happening was the spirit behind it all was quenched because of the letter of human law and human interpretation on the word of God. What happens for us today, isn't it? 
I know there are some of you here who this is the only time you ever come to a church. It's kind of nostalgia. And I wonder if Jesus is trying to show you today that what's deep there, deep down inside, has actually been quenched, not by God, but by humans. And I wonder if today God wants to revive that in your heart. Now, the Pharisees are talking about fasting. And fasting is, is actually a, a practice that I do and that I recommend. And, and I know sometimes, yeah, not, not even sometimes, these days fasting is kind of a, a new, it's, it's kind of, I don't want to say a new thing, but it's an in thing, right? Intermittent fasting, intermittent fasting. Anyone here do that? And, and, you know, a lot of things are coming out in the news about how healthy it is to not eat all the time. And to give your body a break, to detoxify. And I know some of you are like, no way. There is no physical benefit to fasting, right? Especially when you smell the turkey and the ribs and all the stuff going on, right? Yet in the news, we read, hey, there are actually health benefits to fasting. Well, beyond that, right, beyond that, it's interesting how Jesus himself practiced fasting. And we actually see several examples of fasting in scripture, but it was all voluntary, right? In the Old Testament, fasting was linked not to health benefits. I think sometimes we reverse engineer and we're like, oh, what's the, why were they so healthy? Or why was the life expectancy so long? I mean, do that. But actually in the Old Testament, fasting was linked to mourning in the Old Testament, mourning and repentance. In the New Testament, fasting was linked to seeking God's will. In fact, today, is there any of you who are trying to seek God's will and hear from him as to what your next steps are? Fasting is a biblical practice to seek his will. Fasting is also something in the New Testament where people would do to, to, to seek and to experience extra grace and strength to remain faithful to God's work. Fasting is also linked to times of worship in the New Testament. Really, when you look at this spiritual discipline of fasting, it's a, it's a practice where you deny yourself of what you normally need in order to direct your attention to God in prayer. So every time you hunger, every time you thirst, every time you want the very thing that you're fasting, what happens is in that, when, when you get that hunger pain or when you get that, oh, I want to do the very thing I'm fasting from, that becomes a prompt for prayer and directing your attention to God. But what we need to understand here is that fasting is not a magical way to manipulate God into doing your will. And that's kind of what the Pharisees made it. And I think that's sometimes what we think of it. It's not a way to get God to bend toward your will. It's instead a way for us to bend our will to God. So in this passage, Jesus shares the reason why they're not fasting now, but are going to fast later on, right? In Mark 2, 19, Jesus said, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come right? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. What is Jesus talking about here? 
the day, the time will come when the groom will be taken from them. This here is Jesus paralleling himself with a groom in a wedding. This is Jesus prophesying about the day when he is going to be taken away from us on Good Friday. He's paralleling himself with the groom and pointing to that time and the era when the Messiah Savior would rule and reign. In this, Jesus was also prophesying that a day was going to become, that the day was going to come when he was going to be taken away, crucified, and then that is when the disciples were going to begin fasting. So let's read about that day in Mark chapter 15, that day that Jesus was talking about. Mark chapter 15, starting from verse 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women watching from a distance Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and he boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he brought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and, and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. This was the day that Jesus was prophesying about in Mark 2. His disciples, now, here in this time, were devastated, right? They were mourning. Yet Jesus, true to his character, does not leave things here, right? He does not leave things here in verse 47 at the end of chapter 15. He he doesn't stay in the tomb as we sang about today. He, He brings about beauty from the ashes by resurrecting from the dead. So let's look at chapter 16 and see resurrection morning in, in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. 
you'll see him there just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, not only was he fulfilling one of 300 plus prophecies about him from the Old Testament, but he's actually fulfilling the fact that he was going to give us a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair, as we read about in Isaiah 61.3. But can you believe that? That Jesus, that this man, that this one individual fulfilled more than 300 prophecies about this coming Messiah and Savior in the Old Testament? I mean, one person fulfilling 300 prophecies. I mean, what's the probability or the likelihood for that to even happen? For one person to fulfill all of those prophecies that were written in the Old Testament hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born. I know there are probably some of you who are like hundreds and hundreds. Okay, so all these prophecies that you talk about, that you're talking about, Daniel, these 300 plus prophecies were written about hundreds and hundreds of years. They were written about hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Then, then, does it, then couldn't Jesus have just read about them and fulfilled them? Yeah, completely. Maybe one, right? Maybe, maybe a couple, but 300? 300? When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he entered on the back of a donkey. That was a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. All right, that's easy enough to fulfill. Read about it. The king, the Messiah is going to come on a donkey. Okay, go find a donkey and let's go. Prophecy, check. But 300? Okay, if we were to just sit back and try to crunch the numbers to see the probability of one person fulfilling 300 prophecies, I mean, our brains would explode, right? It just, it would, it would hurt. It would really hurt. And I don't want to subject you to that kind of math. <laughs> so let's take an easier number. Let's just say eight. What's the probability of one person fulfilling just eight prophecies from the Old Testament? Just eight. Well, it's one in 10 to the 17th power. That's, that's 17 zeros after 10. Okay, remember when the Powerball, or it wasn't the Powerball, the Mega Millions was like $1.6 billion last year? Anyone remember that? I'm not going to ask if you bought a lottery ticket, right? But do you remember what it was that much money? You know what the probability was for you to win that? It was one in 300 million. For one person to fulfill eight prophecies is not a hundred million, it's a hundred quadrillion. One in a hundred quadrillion. I mean, what does that even mean? Right? Would it like in real life right now, today, 2019, what does that even mean? What is a quadrillion? Right? Does that come after trillion? Does that come after, like, what does that even mean? Well, uh, there's this book, Science Speaks, that Peter Stoner wrote, and, and he crunched these numbers, and he came up with this example. Okay? And, and for those of you who are from Texas, 
uh, you're going to really enjoy this example because he talks about the state of Texas. And I know Texans love Texas, right? So, and everyone else just rolls their eyes. So, okay, so imagine Texas, right? The state of, Te- or the, sorry, I'm sorry, the Republic of Texas, <laughs> right? And, and how many of you here have a silver dollar or know what a silver, bo- silver dollar looks like? Okay, for those of you who don't know what a silver dollar is, just imagine a girl guide thin mint patty. Okay, it's the same size. Okay, so imagine you had a silver dollar and that the entire state of Texas or Republic of Texas was covered with silver dollars. Okay, just imagine that. Okay, I mean, that's, that's a lot of silver dollars, isn't it? Okay, now imagine that the entire, like all of Texas was covered not just by one layer of silver dollars, but two feet of silver dollars. Okay, just imagine that. Now grab one of your friends and say, hey, here is a silver dollar. Uh, I want you to pick this silver dollar out from all the hundred quadrillion silver dollars that are going to be covering Texas. But to make it easier for you, Here's the Sharpie. I'm going to color that silver dollar in. Okay, not one side. I don't want to be tricky. You know, let's do both sides. All right, let it dry. Okay, now here's what I want you to do. I'm going to, I'm going to give you this silver dollar. Okay, here, you have it. Put it in your pocket. It's the black one. And I'm going to blindfold you, and I want you to walk into this crop duster. Okay, get into this plane, and you're going to be flown all around Texas. Now, you can tell the plane to go exactly where you want to go. Like, I don't really care. Or you can just keep it random. But give him the GPS coordinates, exactly where you want him to go, and go. And at that particular moment, I want you to chuck that silver dollar out of the airplane. Now, you can't land right away. You got to let some of those hurricanes come, and, and tornadoes, and, and earthquakes. You just got all the silver dollars just got to get mixed up. And then I want you to land that plane blindfolded, and you only have one chance to pick out the silver dollar that was marked up by the Sharpie. Just one chance. You can't go around like this. You just have one chance to go like this and pick it out. The probability of your friend finding that silver dollar is the probability of one person fulfilling eight prophecies from the Old Testament. Just eight. Yet Jesus fulfilled 300 including the one that, where he said he was going to be bringing about beauty from the ashes. Friends, as we look at this passage, as we examine the claims of Jesus, as we examine just the unlikely probability for one person, if Jesus were just some man to fulfill eight prophecies. And, and we see if, if, if it's so unlikely for one person just to fulfill eight, imagine if silver dollars were covered across all of the United States or all of North America and we did the exact same experiment. That's how likely it was for one person to manufacture any of this. Yet Jesus, being the Son of God, being God himself, did not come to trick us, but came to save us. And one thing he wants to do is he wants to bring about beauty from the ashes that you might be experiencing in your life. Here's the thing. Jesus is not about, he, he's not about saying, oh, here's your brokenness. Let me just give you some extra bandages. That's not what Jesus does. 
Nor is Jesus this person who's going to say, oh, here's your cracked up wineskin. I'm going to pour new wine. I'm going to give you fresh life into this old self of yours. No, Jesus in his grace and in his mercy and in his goodness through his death and resurrection wants to make you new. He wants to give you new wine in new wineskins. In other words, when you come before this crucified and resurrected Jesus, this Jesus who defeated death, who defeated sin, who defeated pain, hurt, and suffering, and when you give him your life, he will make you new. He will be the exodus from the grip of slavery that you might be experiencing. Jesus will be the exodus from oppression, the oppression that you might be experiencing and he'll walk you into freedom. He'll be the exodus from your hurt and from the exodus of paying for all that we deserve. He will make a way when there is no other way. How many of you woke up and saw the news this morning? On your phones, the bombings in Sri Lanka where there are over 200 Christians dead because of the bombings of the, the bombings of these churches. Friends, when Jesus returns, there will be no more death, no more pain, no more suffering, no more of any of that. Because he will make all things new. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My question for you today is, will you come to him? Will you come to Jesus today? Freedom cannot be found in anyone else or through anything else because it's only through Jesus that we can experience true freedom. And here's the truth about that freedom. Truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. When we come before Jesus, he will give us the kind of freedom that we have never fully and wholly experienced, that we can't fully and wholly experience except through him. When you decide to lay down all the things that are holding you back, your doubt, your pain, your questions, and anything else that you have been building your life upon and chasing after, when you lay all of that down and you instead decide to follow Jesus, what happens is your status will change from enslaved to free, from slave to child, from no inheritance to full inheritance, from worker to heir, from ashes to beauty. And the beautiful thing about all this is that Jesus is not asking you to fulfill a list of requirements before he will set you free because that's what the Pharisees do. Right? That's what, the fair, what we read about in Mark chapter 2. That's what the Pharisees try to do. That's what religion does. It says you can't experience the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus until you fix yourself, until you dress the part, until you look the part, until you clean yourself up. 
That's what religion and self-help says. It tells you to do this, do that, pick yourself up, wash your face, walk yourself through the door and get things right, and then you'll be accepted. But for any of you who have tried that, you realize it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's because religion and self-help says do, whereas Jesus says done. Jesus, when he came and died on the cross and was raised from the dead, what he did was he fulfilled every single requirement that we needed to be accepted, to be forgiven, and to spend eternity with our Lord. But here's, here's the thing, friends. A lot of times we think believing in Jesus is about eternity in heaven. That's what we believe that we believe that we come here to somehow secure a place for us eternally. It's, it's like buying a life insurance policy. It's hard in the moment, and maybe once a month you feel the pain as the dues go out. But by and large, you're safe, right? Because you have the life insurance policy. And unfortunately, a lot of us have relegated our relationship to Jesus and Christianity to a life insurance policy. If that's all it is to you, let me tell you something, you're missing out. You're missing out on the abundant life that Jesus wants you to experience now. You're missing out on the freedom from sin, from hurt that he is wanting you to experience now. You're missing out on the comfort and the grace that he wants to give you now in your hurt. You're missing out because when you follow Christ, he's saying, follow me not later, but follow me now. Follow me now. How many of you are following Jesus now? How many of you, in your moments throughout the week, maybe even when no one else is looking, can legitimately say that you are following Jesus now? And if you aren't, maybe that's why this has become a once a year thing. Maybe that's why this has become a when it's convenient thing. And friends, if you feel a conviction in your heart, that's not me guilting you. If you're feeling like a, oh, you're right, that's not me and my words. That's the grace of God. That's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, remember? Remember me? I want you to feel this now because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a gentle nudge because that poke, that prod that you might be feeling now because you've relegated this Jesus 
to a once a year or once a month or a once in a while thing when it's convenient for you. That's Jesus saying, hey, I want you to experience eternity now. I want you to experience freedom now. So what say you? How will you respond?